Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. Today, we're speaking with Andrew McMahon, a founding partner at Ridgeline. Ridgeline is an investment firm that supports emerging technology companies at the intersection of commercial enterprise and the federal government. So Andrew, thanks for joining us today. We're looking forward to the conversation. To start out, why don't you tell us about Ridgeline and the strategy of the fund? Thanks so much for having me and really excited to be here. So Ridgeline, we're a enterprise and, and deep tech fund. We invest early stage, C and A, and our focus is on companies with what we refer to as massive commercial growth potential, but with a use case in the DOD or national security market. And so we think of that use case piece as do they solve a critical need in that market, in the DOD market and national security. And so it allows us to filter companies in an interesting way where we invest at the overlap of venture and defense. And so that guides our themes, but our thesis is investing in those companies at an early stage. And then as a value add investor, helping them go to market and generate revenue in defense and national security with typically less risk and at a faster rate than they would otherwise, and definitively earlier than they would. What are some of those themes that you guys are concentrating on right now? Yeah. So on the deep tech side, we've been pretty heavy in the space sector of late. My partner, Ryan Clinton, who's based in LA, he has a physics background and likes the space quite a bit. And we've invested in companies in high-performance computing and in semiconductors as well. So thinking about that as a big focus for the DOD, where a lot of investment is going. On the enterprise side of the coin, we see enterprise software infrastructure developer tools as a big piece of the puzzle. And again, is driven by both national defense policy and where they're taking that department from a strategy standpoint, being more software focused, bringing more technical what we think of as, from a venture standpoint, technical talent on board to build in-house. And so when we see multi-billions of dollars of investment heading towards a market that's venture-backable, we spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, is this an area we want to spend some time in? Another one would also be artificial intelligence and machine learning, though we see the Defense Department as doing a lot of the foundational things right now, less product in AI, more ML ops or AI core, things that support teams and support the operational aspects of building models and deploying models. Andrew, what's the genesis of the connection to the DOD or the government? So for Ryan and Ben, it's very personal. They went to West Point. Ben Walker, who's in San Francisco, is our third partner. They both went to West Point, were both army officers, both deployed to Iraq together also deployed to Afghanistan, but they felt the pain of having poor technology in theater. Ben tells an anecdote pretty frequently about his radio operator using his cell phone frequently to call back to base rather than the radio itself. And while that is, we're not investing in radios very often, that's just an example of the way that soldiers in theater will feel the pain of poor technology investment and modernization. And so they both had careers, but have that root in the Defense Department and in the military, and they really wanted to try to solve this problem. Myself, I spent seven years in the Obama administration working directly on technology modernization as it pertains to the federal agencies, including the Department of Defense. And 
it is a very complicated big knot to untie. But towards the end, I began to realize that in order for the Defense Department to attract and essentially maintain pace with adversaries and understand where the technology industry was going, it needed access to the companies that were building that. They no longer had in their grasp the innovation agenda that was outside of in the private market. And so for us, it's about helping companies first and foremost grow, scale, become more valuable because we're their investors. But secondly, it's really driving modern technology into a, a legacy organization that frankly really needs it in support of soldiers and also in order to maintain footing against adversaries and competitors globally. And how did you meet your partners? So Ben and I, I was actually at the tail end of the Obama administration working in San Francisco, which if anyone ever gets the chance to be a political appointee 3,000 miles away from Washington, D.C., do it. It's a great job. I was doing a lot of engagement with venture and startups, helping unblack the box of government for them. Ben was working at Deloitte. He was actually standing up the Silicon Valley office for Deloitte and was starting to hunt at a corporate venture model for them, though that quickly became difficult given the audit practice at Deloitte. But we met while I was in government. We built a relationship. I got to know Ryan through Ben. And obviously their relationship is a lifetime one. And they brought me in as the civilian or the hippie to round out their military backgrounds. But in April of 19, Ben was spinning out of a venture firm called Harpoon Ventures. And we spoke a lot about what he was thinking about doing with Ridgeline. He was incubating the idea out of a group called West Exec Advisors in Washington, D.C., and I pitched him on stepping out of my role at the Decode Group as the CRO there and becoming one of the founding partners. We all jumped in the summer of 19. And like a lot of these micro VCs or seed stage firms, we started small, had a kernel of an idea of what would work and started doing it. Because you really don't know whether it's going to work until you start doing it, which you guys know very well, given that you stepped out of the box from a thesis standpoint. Yeah. And you and I had talked a while back. And I think when you were starting, you were taking equity in exchange for helping companies, right? So literally like sweat equity, basically. That was an interesting model, I thought. So are you going to continue with that model? Or are you going to completely shift to a traditional venture fund? Where it makes sense, we will. One of the added features of working with the founding team on a go-to-market motion is you get asymmetric information that even the board members don't have at times because you are working on one of the most important pieces of the business, product probably first, talent next, and then the business side third, I would think. And you get a lot of insight. How does the team work? How does the customer react to the product? Is the executive team the right executive team? Before you make that investment, that can be really valuable. It can also allow you to invest in the company off cycle and potentially take a discount on the next round. And we have an, a flexible approach to when we invest and the position that we take. We lead some rounds, but we don't have a requirement to lead all. And running our sweat equity model, which is going to happen more infrequently, it at times helps us get a bit of a competitive advantage over other investors, whether we make the investment or we don't. And is the fund geographically based at all? It is in the sense that because of the DOD's concern about certain geographic areas, we typically focus on US, Canada, UK, and Australia, which make up for the five I's or the intelligence sharing countries, New Zealand being the, the fifth, which we don't exclude, but just haven't found a company down there yet. 
And so those, re- those four countries have been where we've looked the most. Western Europe, we could include as well, but typically even NATO countries, the intelligence community gets a bit skittish. You could add Israel in there, but the intelligence community likes Israeli companies. The DOD tends to be a, a bit more risk adverse there. So that, that's how we focus the regional footprint and all over the United States. And so we've invested up and down the East Coast, Midwest, up and down the West Coast as well. So we're, we're pretty focused all over the United States. How many companies are in your portfolio and do you want to highlight one or two as case studies? Yeah, so we have 14 in the portfolio at the moment, and they run the gamut across the themes that I described earlier. Two that I would call out as, you know, really interesting companies. And one is a really good story in terms of what we do and how we do it. The first is a company, Wallaroo, based in New York. So technical founder, which we like a lot, mainly because we think product differentiation on product and technology happens more frequently with technical founders. It's not a a business model innovation or process innovation that they're going after. And that resonates with the DOD quite a bit. But Wallaroo is an ML ops company. And so it allows for really efficient deployment, a scaling and management of machine learning models, which is a big choke point and bottleneck right now for enterprises. And they've done well in the DOD for being a pre-series A company and have taken advantage of what the DOD refers to as non-dilutive capital, which is matching dollars on contracts that you might win with customers in the DOD. That provided them runway last year, which was an important year to you know, essentially build runway into your business. Uh, a lot of folks went out and raised from existing investors. They were able to run on the business that they created in the DOD and now are seeing really interesting traction in the commercial markets across a few different verticals. Another company I'm really excited about is actually a Series B company. So one of our later stage companies called Replicated, based in Culver City, California, but they're fully remote. So their headquarters is there, but they have folks all over. And they have a product called COTS, which is an acronym for Kubernetes off the shelf. In short, they bring the, the data to the app instead of bringing the app to the data. They allow you to deploy, manage Kubernetes instances of your software in any environment. And so essentially, takes the question, do you deploy on-prem off the table for third-party software vendors and allows those companies to deploy and manage kind of one ground truth of their software. And the way we're seeing the market going on the infrastructure side with the continued growth of cloud and then, but also the preference and push on the security and privacy side, we think that this is like an inflection point for them and they're going to do really awesome things. They're led by uh, a, a great CEO, Grant Miller, and, and their CTO, Mark Campbell. And Grant's got great product marketing background, which I, I really love in a CEO. is a horizontal view across a lot of different things, especially if they have a bit of a technical bent as well. And so it's one where we probably created some of the excitement in Wallaroo because we were able to help them grow in the defense market. Replicate is just starting their journey, but they're doing awesome things and are going to make us look good. Wallaroo will too, but Replicated is just beginning their DoD journey. Andrew, what are some of the big issues that the DoD is facing in terms of areas that could be opportunities for private companies to address? First and foremost, and this isn't something that companies are going to be able to address, actually there are companies out there that do support, is there's a talent gap. There's a big gap in cybersecurity professionals. There's a big gap in, if you were to compare GE to parts of the DOD, you see big differences in number of software engineers, product managers, titles that we're accustomed to seeing frequently. 
On the side that matters to companies, I think we're in a position right now where security is going to be a massive focus of this administration. Only became more important over the last two weeks, obviously, with the Colonial Pipeline. The EO that came out and and likely got pushed out very quickly based on that emergent issue that was going on. And security compliance can be a bucket of cold water on a lot of companies, just the way that they're going to pursue government if it's done incorrectly. And so if it's a compliance exercise, you need to essentially drop $250,000 on this R version of SOC or ISO and essentially spend capital to access the market, even just to start having conversations with customers, that's a big loser for, for the DOD. Meaning, meaning because there's a lot of acronyms here, so I just want to make sure that everybody's following. Yeah, sorry. So sorry, like sorry. You're talking about... <laughs> Those are industry acronyms, actually. So we're, I think... <laughs> right. So I, I want to make sure that our audience... So, so you're talking about barriers to entry for companies in the cyberspace for the DOD? That's exactly right. So my fear is the reaction around solar winds and the Colonial Pipeline hack is we need to be 100% certain that the software that's entering the network on the DoD side is riskless, which is impossible. Most folks are moving to zero trust. And there's a lot of talk about zero trust right now in, in the White House, which is great. But there needs to be an understanding that by adopting modern technology, you're actually improving security. And so we've heard this narrative time and again, like cloud is less secure. We're all probably pretty confident that large enterprises running their own data centers and having to do patches and updates is probably less secure than shipping things to Google and Amazon, allowing them to manage your security. Open source is far less secure. And if you're not patching and updating, sure, that might be the case. But over time, I think community development of software, especially projects that are well-run and, and have a large community, are typically more buttoned up. And so what we would want to see and what we would want to see the DoD say is, okay, by adopting modern technology, we can actually improve the security posture and we need to figure out a way to do that in a way that manages risk, but a way that doesn't discourage companies at seed and series A from entering the market. And then one other piece that I think is key is the DoD understanding the business models of today's technology industry and meeting the industry where it is. So buying a holistic solution that only 12 firms like Booz and Deloitte and Lockheed Martin can deliver because they've asked for every requirement under the sun is not a great way to get early stage or even late stage companies to sell to the federal government unless they're partnering in a significant way. And so essentially breaking things up in, in a very aggressive way on procurements and making them much smaller and essentially having a, a diversity of choice around the tools and products that you can buy and, and use to build a system, that's going to be a, a key feature of, I think, the modernization of the DoD and encouraging companies to go to market and making sure that their investors stay interested. I think they've started to draw some investors in and board members to say, okay, this is something to try. The narrative is much different than it was in 2015 when I was talking to the venture firms about this. And you see the investment in some big defense firms like Anderil and, and Rebellion. But the market hasn't moved in the industry's direction or the, the procurement process hasn't moved in the industry's direction. Got it. And what's the best way for a young company that has some interesting technology? Where do you even start if you want to have the DOD or the government as a customer? Because it's not like most young companies are not thinking about that, right? Or don't even know if their technology would be appropriate. Is it to partner up with groups like yours or is there an efficient path there? 
We think there is, and we would say start small. Really think about where in different organizations there is process innovation happening on the procurement side. And so that's a great signal that they're ready to buy in a cycle that you're going to be able to tolerate as a company and as a founder. People ask us the question frequently, well, who do you sell to? Do you sell just to the DOD or do you help companies sell elsewhere? And our answer is always, we'll go wherever the buyer is essentially the most efficient. And right now that's the DOD. And so places like AFWorks and the Air Force, which is like an innovation shop there, DIU, which is more of a broader corp dev organization that sits in Silicon Valley and tries to access interesting technologies for customers on the DOD side. You have Army Futures down in Austin, which is, a, again, an innovation shop. They're all trying to break down the elongated procurement process and, and sales process that happens. And so those places are great places to start and then use the revenue that you build up as a way to pay for the market. Unless you're a Series D or beyond company, diving in and trying to essentially hire up and break into the market in a typical sense is a great way to spend a lot of money over 18 months and not have a lot to show for. Once you've established a toehold, you can start to think about partnering and channels and how do you combine your product with Accenture services at a certain agency. But until you have that toehold, it's very difficult to get their attention because they care about their customer and what their customer wants, not your interesting technology that's doing great in financial services, let's say. What other advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are looking to start a business in the commercial space? I, I would say do one thing and do it really well. Find the customer that is desperate for your product. Get feedback from that customer. If it can go bottoms up, and I do almost exclusively software investing, and so you know, this wouldn't be advice for a space company on Ryan's side of the house, but if you can go bottoms up, go bottoms up. We think that unlocks a lot of value on the upside. But be ruthless about the customer and what the customer wants. And once you have that set of customers that loves the product and really couldn't live without it, I think that's when companies should think about scale. And one of those customers or a couple of those customers can include the DOD. We typically look for customers that are referenceable in the DOD. We don't want a blind customer or a, a mute customer where you can say, hey, I'm working for the CIA, but I can't tell you anything else. It doesn't really mean anything to your Series A or Series B potential lead. All they say is that's a good logo, but I don't know what it is and what you're doing. And that's a piece of it as well. But customer focus and product focus is still key to a lot of this. And you had alluded to it before, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, I was seven years in the Obama administration. I worked at the Commerce Department. As for, we can see behind I, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Commerce Department for a year. This is just a background that Zoom. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I worked at the White House for two and a half and then GSA for three and a half. And I spent most of my time working for principals and the last year and a half as a principal managing the GSA on the West Coast, which was an interesting job because it pulled me out of technology a little bit because they do some building stuff and procurement. But almost all of my time was focused on how to improve the way that the government buys, manages, and modernizes technology. And that ended up being largely uh, budget procurement and human capital questions, not technology questions. So well-suited for somebody who's not an engineer or a CTO or somebody like that. So that was a wonderful experience. I went to policy school at the University of Chicago prior to my time in, in the Obama administration. I was a middle school teacher before that for two years here in D.C., 
And post Obama, I spent three years as the CRO of, of the Deco Group, which I think you guys had Megan on one of the earliest shows, which is great. And so helped Megan and Meg, who were the, the first two in the company, and I was the third, grow from us three to about 25 and was an accelerator that helps mid to late stage companies go to market in the federal government. Great experience for me stepping out of government and looking in from the outside and getting the different perspectives. So I have a 360 view now. That's my professional background. I've got three kids under five. So four and a half year old, an almost two year old and a five month old, which is crazy. I live in DC with my wife and, and the kids and we're having a blast, but it's kind of melee at all times. And I am pretty tired, but not as tired as my wife is. <laughs> That's great. Now we're going to shift to our standard questions in an attempt to get to know you better. So first is our NVCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. So if there's one thing you would change about the VC industry or one policy you would advocate for, what would it be? So one thing I'd change about the cultural piece of the VC industry is the focus on high-end universities for founders. There's been some studies that have come out recently that have shown that there is actually not a lot of correlation between going to the top 10 schools and producing the returns that we dream about when we sleep. And I think it's a bit of a lazy binary for a good founder. And we have found great founders who have gone to lots of other schools and, and will continue to do that. And I think that it can be a reinforcing function of a lot of the equity conversations that are happening in venture today as well. On the policy side, this is probably bigger than just venture, but the bucketing of all small businesses into one category in the eyes of our government is counterproductive to a lot of different policies, whether it's tax, the entitlements that happen from within the government. I think it may not be exactly right, but under the government's definition, I think like 98% or 95% of all businesses are small businesses, which doesn't really differentiate quite a bit. And the, the businesses that we invest in are decidedly different than a family business that you would start and run for a generation or two. There is an intention to scale. There's an intention to hire thousands of people there's an intention to go public or get acquired. And I think that is a very different thing. And I think would open up some more creative legislative or policy, both decisions and work on that side. That would, I think would be pretty interesting. Great. Second question is if you were not a VC investor and money was not a concern, what career would you have? Do I have well, to work or do, do I, anything. can I just, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would probably do something related to skiing. So a ski instructor or a ski patrol. I, I love skiing. If I could do it a hundred days a year plus, I, I would. I always am jealous of the, the the people who work on the mountain. It seems like a really neat job. So that, I think if I had to have a job, that would probably be what it was, but it wouldn't feel like one. That sounds like fun. You're the second person to actually give us that answer. So that's good. <laughs> oh, nice. Who's, who's the other? We'll have to go skiing next year. <laughs> I don't remember who it was. Jenny, do you remember <laughs> It was Wes at Scout. Oh, perfect. I'll, I'll reach out. Perfect. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sympathic also on the on yeah. kind of the, the business side. Great. So question three is who is someone you look up to and why? So at a personal level, my uncle Skip is somebody that I look up to a lot. It's my dad's oldest brother. He's had like a Forrest Gumpian career or life. He's done every job you could imagine. He started a very successful business and 
sold it too early or walked away from it. His co-founder's done very well without regret. He races horses and trains thoroughbreds. He started and built one of the most amazing and innovative community centers in the country and still runs that as like the Meredith ED. It's called The Ark. It's in Southeast DC. He ran the all the AV and events for a hotel in DC called The Shoreham back when Frank Sinatra and a bunch of other really, really prominent singers were actually going there to perform. So he has these amazing stories and he's always, he's never shied away from walking away from something and and doing what he wanted to do. And that's, it's a superpower if you can find it. Somebody that's in the, I'll probably never meet and is in the kind of the the public sphere would be Yvonne Chouinard, the co-founder of Patagonia, which is super cliche for a venture capitalist to be talking about the Patagonia founder. I'm not wearing a Patagonia vest right now. It goes with the skiing everyone. theme though. Yeah, yeah. Mountains but and... I, I, I've always loved the- It's company. on brand. Yeah, exactly. What they've stood for. They essentially created an activist company before it was even a thing and have maintained that. So he's pretty interesting. So those two folks would be who I'd call out. Great. Question four is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? When I would walk out of the house during my formative years, my parents would always tell me, don't hurt yourself, don't hurt anybody else, and don't hurt anybody else's property. And that is you know, still good advice today. And it is literally to live by. <laughs> yeah, in my brain every time I walk out of the house. But yeah, that's the advice that I got so often that I can't ever forget it. And it's something that I'd say to myself now and I probably will to my kids. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. We really enjoyed the conversation and we look forward to doing this again. Yeah, this was awesome. Thanks so much. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at Proof.VC. Thank you.